Hello and welcome back to Brunch and Slay. I am your host, Amira Sane, founder, and today we are truly blessed to have joining us, founder of Dalvinow Strategy, Chief Strategy Officer of Mouth Marketing, and two-time Emmy Award-winning writer, Ms. Erica Holloway. Hey, Erica. Hi. Hello. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with us today. Anytime. This is fun. I love doing... Uh love doing podcasts. I know, it's my guilty pleasure. I'm admit, I listen to a ton, and it's just so easy when you're working out or you're in the car, you get a little snippet, and, you know, you're going about your way, so I'm in love. Yes, it is. It's it's great, and it, if you spend as much time in cars as most working women do, it's it's a good, good time to catch up on what's going on in the world. Yes, so Erica and I had the pleasure of being together this weekend. We, I'm still on a high. I'm coming down now. Uh, we had Brunch and Slay uh, here in Houston, which, for those of you who don't know, is a micro-conference that I put together once a year in Houston and a couple other cities. We kind of spread it out. This year, we only had one in Houston. And it's an opportunity for women from all different backgrounds and career fields to come together and lift one another up and just talk about commonalities and in a great environment with lots of cocktails and great food. <laughs> lots of cocktails. Lots of cocktails. Must. That's a must. That's, that's number one. Uh, <laughs> and so Erica definitely truly was a guest. She was one of our panelists and she brought down the house with her transparency and her honesty and I am forever grateful for her truth and for her sharing her truth. So thanks again for that, Erica. Absolutely. You know, when you talk to women about being um, in business, having family to run and a house and all of those things, I, th I think it's just crucial that we remember that we have very similar challenges in life and that we're not as different from each other as we think and nobody else has got it all figured out. So I think it's very reassuring to know that. Absolutely, yeah. So I, I want to dive in because Erica's number one, I could talk to her all day. So I wanted her to kind of share with you guys a little bit about her background. Yes, you heard me mention she has two thriving businesses and she has a resume to boot. So Erica, tell us a little bit about your background. I know you started out uh, in journalism and politics and you have just evolved continuously. Well, I, I started out as a writer, I think when I was about... 11, my mom got me a diary uh, for Easter, which is an unusual gift for Easter. Um, you know, he's risen. Here's a diary to write about it, I suppose. <laughs> and uh, I, I just, I fell in love with it. And it just, it just felt like a, a good place for me to express myself. And that followed me throughout my life. And I was in college and I thought, well, I'm not going to make a living as a poet. Um, because I was not good at it, you, I, I can't even I can't even describe how how sad my poetry was. But I, you know, it helped get get through a few angsty teenage years, and and uh, I, I saw an advertisement in the college newspaper that said, "Hey, we're taking writers," and I thought, "Wait a second, this is great. I can be paid to write." Well, this is this is genius. 
So I went in and I applied for a job after I, I took some time. I went and studied abroad in Scotland, um, which is where my family is from. And um, when I got back to Western Michigan University, I marched myself right into the university newspaper and said, I want a job. And they said, great. You get paid two fifty-seven a story, and uh, and you only have deadlines every single day on top of uh, your regular work as a full-time student. Plus, I was a waitress on the weekends, and I said, I will do it. I will do it, and I did. Um, seven years later, I was working in San Diego as a journalist, and I had uh, reached a burnout point. Um, I was a journalist during 9-11, and we wrote a lot of very sad stories, including a, a pilot that was from San Diego. He um, he was the co-pilot in Flight 11, and I interviewed his family because he was he was from the area, and it, it was just a, a really uneven time, I think, in American life and history and politics. And I was covering a lot of politics at the time, and a friend said, "You know, if you ever want to get out of newspapers," and I said, "Wait, what? What? I want to hear this. I want to hear the rest of this conversation." If you ever want to get out of newspapers, maybe think about working in government. I thought, no, it's not for me. And he said, I think you'd like it more than you realize. So this this opportunity came up to interview with an office. I didn't get that job. I'm, I'm grateful now that I did not get that job. And a few months later, um, a chief of staff for a state senator called me, and she said, we've got this job open, and would you be interested in coming in and interviewing? I went in, I got the job, and before you know it, I'm a communications director for a state senator who was the future minority leader. And I did that for four years. And then I went and worked at the County of San Diego for almost four years. And then I started my own consulting firm and started managing political campaigns and handling crisis communications and reputation management and um, handling all things media relations, doing TV interviews and, and all that. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't organic to me. A lot of people, oh, well, you were in journalism, it must have made sense. It really wasn't. It, it, was a much, uh, it was a much higher trajectory than I expected because I had no TV experience, I had no radio experience, and I was learning as I was going along. I was faking it until I made it. And, uh, but the writing side of it, the politics side of it all made sense to me because I had been covering government for so many years. And, and I really liked it. And I had to learn PR. I had to learn marketing. I had to become a student of it and join Public Relations Society of America and various marketing uh, trade associations and, and just kind of absorb and become a sponge. So I went off and I did my own thing with Galvanized Strategies, which you mentioned, for a number of years. And then um, baby number one was here. Baby number two is on the way. And um, I my husband and I decided we wanted to move out to Houston to, um, you know, start start life here and be close to my parents who live here in town. And after I got here, I was offered a position with a marketing firm that specializes specifically in oil and gas business to business marketing. Three things I know nothing about. I didn't know anything about agency life. I didn't know anything about business to business. And I did not know anything about oil and gas. And uh, it was it was like jumping into the pool at the deep end for me. It was a it was a huge leap and it was an international company, so I was working on a 24-hour clock for the first time, which if you've never worked on a 24-hour clock is an interesting experience. You know, having calls with Singapore at eight or nine o'clock at night and then getting up at six in the morning so that you can have a call with your British counterparts. Um, it was a it was an interesting it really stretched me. I learned 
a lot um, during that time. And I was managing a lot of the business operations side of it. And I'd never done that before. So managing the budgets, handling the, the profit and loss sheets and the balance sheets for the staff and uh, overseeing invoicing to all the clients that we had. It was, it, was a, it, was a big, it was a big responsibility, a big role. And I really enjoyed the mentorship of my staff. That was something that um, was new for me in, a, in that way and just loved it. I really did. Um, and then oil and gas dropped out <laughs> and suddenly I found myself back to where I, I kind of was when I first moved to Houston, which was consulting through uh, galvanized strategies and getting back into the public affairs scene. And then I, I linked up with Ashley, my business partner who you met, and she had mouth marketing um, which is at mouthmarketingllc.com if you want to check it out. Um, and we have uh, formed this partnership for the last year and doing all things marketing and digital and public relations all kind of together. And it's, uh, it's been really fun. It's been really fun. Yeah, I mean, it actually, when I hear you speak your, your story and your journey, it definitely seems like you were being prepared from the beginning to um, definitely juggle a lot of balls in the air and be a multi-chapter and that basically prepares you for this life of entrepreneurship. Um, I know a lot of times when we're in this situation, we don't see that. We don't see where it makes sense or how to connect. But listening to you, I can totally see like literally everything was ordered, everything kind of fell into place to get you to where you are now. Uh, so that's pretty awesome. Yeah. And you know, when you start out in a creative space, um, nobody's really preparing you for the business side of work. And one of the things that people ask me when, they, when they're starting a business is, well, what's the one thing that you wish you had known when you got into business that you didn't realize? It's a lot of math. <laughs> You're, I'm, I'm a writer by trade, and I have to learn, I had to really teach myself the magical art of accounting and also sales. Um, business is a lot of sales. A lot of, you, you want a business, you understand this. It's a lot of interpersonal relationships and building on those relationships, getting cues from people about what they want and how to help them achieve their goals. And uh, I think for my friends who were journalists and who had sort of a linear life goal in mind, um, getting into the corporate side was, was really hard for them because they didn't think about all of the multitasking, as you said, in being in business in the corporate world. And so uh, you just take on everything and say, I'll figure it out. And you just kind of give yourself some space to fail a lot, because uh, that's crucial. I mean, we talked about failure the other day, and uh, just allowing yourself that the grace <laughs> to say, "All right, I'm probably not going to be great at this, maybe, maybe ever, uh, but I just, I'm going to try. I'm going to do my best and put it in." Yeah, and I love that you brought that up because I think a lot of times on the outside looking in, when and I'll, and I'll say this for other folks who are listening in who maybe on the fence or have a dream that they just haven't pursued. They look at your resume and your history and they think, well, it's just easy for her. Like you said, people said you were already a journalist. Yeah, but it's a totally different field. And each one of these journeys have made you uncomfortable. Very. You know, each one of them. <laughs> now, you come to Houston, it's a whole other state. It's totally different from California. You're working a job that is challenging and you're growing and then it's gone. Mm-hmm. And now you got to start a new chapter. And yes, you had something that could potentially you could fall back on, but that could have not worked also. Um, talk to me about how you just keep 
running the race. I mean, I think that's a lot of things that people don't realize. You have to keep running the race. You have to keep your head in the game. You can't give yourself room to just lay down and wallow for more than really a day. You can have a pity party. We all have them, but you can't stay there, you know. So how do you keep, keep it going? Well, yes, the pity party is real. And, uh, you know, when you have your pity parties, um, be kind to yourself because there's a lot of things outside your control, you know. It's, it's if, if, I think I wrote to Charlie Markle, she was so wonderful, um, and she sent me an email, and, um, and she said, I just, I loved talking about real things, and I said, you know, it's not like I don't throw up my hands once in a while and say, Jesus, take the wheel, because I don't have all the answers, and I, if I did, it wouldn't be fun. That's the thing. If, if everything goes your way every single day, where's the victories? You're never going to have the victories without the failures. The, and you're going to learn from every single one of your failures. A mistake is something that you didn't learn from, in my view. And failures are something that happened you're going to learn from, and you're going to get better. Um, how do I move on from failures or, or, or just massive missteps in, in judgment? Um, I, I have to sleep on it. I mean, really, I do. I have to have a good night's sleep. Um, and just kind of have a fresh day, a new pair of eyes um, to come back to my problems. Because if I try to solve it the minute that I'm having the emotional response <laughs> that everybody has when something goes wrong, you're going to make another mistake. So I just kind of let it go and I say, okay, this is the path I've chosen and I have to stick with it. Because if I gave up now, that is the real failure. So you just pick yourself back up. And I don't have... I don't have it built in me uh, to just quit. Um, I just don't. I, I know that there are people who are like, yeah, that just went badly. So I just walked into my job one day and said, I'm done. I, I've never felt like that in my life. So I think some people really can allow frustration and emotion to get the better of them. And uh, I, I try to be a little bit more logical than that um, and, and just think about, okay, well, if this, then that, and uh, you know, I I go to I go to church. I'm a church-going woman. I like to go to church because it gives me a place to just oh, let go of everything. Um, if that's not your thing, yoga. You just need to have quiet space. I mean, really, it is meditation. Anything that's going to take you out of your out of some kind of um, um, headspace that's not healthy. And, and put you where you need to be, get everything back on track and say, okay, I'm ready. And then you move forward the best you can. Yeah, I totally agree. And you just reminded me of one of my favorite quotes by Kanye uh, West. And it's, uh, <laughs> for me, giving up is way harder than trying. Like, I just, the thought of giving up most of the time, I think that's the failure. I can, I can have a stumble in the road. I can not do so great on something. But to just crash it, that's the failure. So I, I get it, you know. And I, and I totally understand getting quiet. I think that's a huge part. A lot of times in life, especially as moms and women, we are caregivers for our family. Not just even if we don't have children, we have parents, we have siblings. A lot of us uh, are pulled in so many directions and we don't give ourselves a chance to be quiet with ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a major part of sanity. That it goes back to putting yourself first and self-help and wealth. We have to make it more, comfortable for women to say and make it the norm. This is a priority. We 
have to put ourselves first. We have to make sure that society knows that that's okay. That doesn't make us crazy women. That doesn't mean we're emotional. That means that we understand that we can do, I mean, men do it all the time. No one argues with them for taking a break or for not returning a phone call. They're not making emotional decisions if they step out of a room. Uh, but, but when we do it, it's emotional and we're women and we have to come together and make society know that this is the norm and get them used to it. Well, too, it's also that we, we are decision by committee thinkers. You know, we kind of go to our girlfriends for, what do you think? And while that can be really good, it can also be a little dangerous because if someone is also in that bad head space that you are, it just it kind of multiplies. So I think, you know, just kind of separating yourself out from, and, and, you know, the great thing about getting older as a woman, I can tell you, you know how to get rid of the vampires. Um, you know, you know how to excise those demons. Because one of the things that I, I faced and that was a struggle for me, particularly in my early 20s, was sort of being surrounded by these um, toxic people in my life. And I think it's just kind of a carryover from the teenage years, right? You just, you have these people in your life who's like that girl, that girl in your life that you're like, I should get rid of her. Uh, when you're in your 30s and going into your 40s, you're like, I don't have any of those people in, in my life. They are gone. So that that is a good thing. Most of the time, when I seek the advice of, of other women in my life, I'm getting good thoughts. But, you know, by that point, they're sort of like me, where they just go, I just got to be, got to clear my head. I'll get back on track. I'll get things on an even keel and I'll move forward. And you're right. Fail, like not doing it is not an option for me. I just don't think like that at all. Um, because the alternative is n not succeeding at what I want. And that that's no good. I mean, that means everything else is null and void that I've tried up until this point. Um, yeah. And, and I totally agree. There is a certain and we just really, we're diving into that a little bit more about, about relationships and healthy relationships and giving yourself permission to say goodbye to things that, and relationships that no longer serve you. I think as women, we tend to feel guilty and talk about it, like carrying on those relationships. Just because you've known someone since forever doesn't mean they're going to serve the same capacity in your life that they served at that particular time. Um, one of the things my girlfriend and I typically say is we receive in our lifetime. And that means everybody serves a purpose, uh, and maybe it's for a reason, for a season, or for a lifetime. But you got to be okay with when you realize whatever that their purpose is, accepting it and moving on, or bringing them with you, or leaving them where they are. Uh, and we got to make that more comfortable. I love that. Reason, season, and for a lifetime. I'm keeping that. Oh. I'm writing that down. I like that. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, um, a lot of times I think as women, we're distracted because there's so many different folks, you know, they say that it's humanity or it's and we know that not to be true. Mm -hmm. I think you and I definitely know that because there's so many women out there who are game changers, who are owning their space and who are lifting one another up way more than those who are tearing each other down. Mm -hmm. um, but that's all we see on television, that's yeah. all we see in the news, and you know, when I was younger, I love the good Us Weekly, and I love reality TV. You know, I did. I did. It wasn't until I was in my 30s that I realized that truly everything that you allow in your space speaks into you, even if it is just a reality TV show. Mm -hmm. um, whether it makes you uh, more comfortable with accepting drama, or making you think it's second nature, or making you wallow in it a little longer than you should. Once I kind of remove those things from my life, 
I started to have like zero tolerance for them. And the energy that I'm spending, I don't want to spend it uh, on drama, even if it is on a television screen. Um, and I think that made a huge difference in the way I reacted to different situations as a woman or in different people and recognizing those folks who were, like you said, toxic a lot sooner than giving them chance and chance again. You know, when somebody shows you the true colors, you better believe them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and those, you know, and that that kind of uh, the, the the I like reading true fashion magazines like Vogue and things like that. I mean, the, the magazines that are telling you how thin you should be and how beautiful you should be and how you, this just throw them in the garbage. I mean, it's just nonsense. Um, there's there is nobody out there who knows who you are better than you. Um, you know, if you want to read a fashion magazine, which I I do, I like reading Vogue and things like that because I. I see it as art. I mean, beautiful clothes is art, but don't read those magazines that make you just feel ugly. That's just nonsense. It's, it's not. It's not productive. It's such a waste of time. Uh, you just walk around with this self-conscious attitude, and it's not real. It isn't real. Photoshop, all that stuff. It's not real. I mean, you know. Oh, she had a baby five days ago, and she's a size two. No, she's not. That's that is not true. I agree. We all have our guilty pleasures. I just think that nowadays with social media so prevalent and it's like a consumer industry mm. and everybody's just feeding off of one another's lives, it's really easy to get caught up. And I think you have to have that unplugged time and you have to be careful what you allow in, especially if you're raising daughters, you know, and what you perceive as beauty or what you perceive as a norm. What is normal? I mean, just for example, on Saturday, you kind of mentioned it. That was a room full of women from every range and size, every skin tone, every background, and they were all beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, and and just being able to to let those guards down, I think that's the main thing I've, I noticed. And I think way back when, when I was in college, and I was talking to a, a young lady there at the event on Saturday, who just happened to be one of my sorority sisters from college, and I told her, you know, back then my job was as the hostess. So my job was to create games and create activities for us to come together, you know, and so we can keep the drama down, just keep harmony in the house. Um, and I think even back then, I didn't realize that that was something I was supposed to do, create atmospheres for women that made them stop looking at, oh, you know, a lot of times you see a woman and you think, oh, she's probably snob or she's probably this, at least the younger you would have. But creating atmospheres where we don't even think about those things, where we talk to people we typically wouldn't, would be intimidated by or, or afraid to connect with. That's the whole point of creating these, you know, these, these platforms and these experiences for women so that we can get out of that and start realizing, hey, if we just truly connected, there's somebody in this room who can help me live the best life I'm here to live and you know, can help me give me those tools and can expose me to things that I need to be exposed to. I want to continue that conversation, continue, you know, that movement. I think it's so important. Well, to me, happiness is beauty. And we don't have enough uh, conversations about what happiness means. And it's, it's all, everything on the outside. We don't talk enough about the inside. And, you know, a, a real smile when you see it, you know, that person's happy. And that's beauty. We have to focus on what actually means real beauty. Because looks fade. You know, we all get older, we're going to get crow's feet and all that other stuff. And so what? Are you happy? 
Are you doing the things in life that's going to give you smile lines? That's what you got to be worried about. Um, you know, are you having fun experiences? Are you spending quality time with people that you love? That's important stuff. Um, that, you know, time with family, making sure that you, I'm going to a family reunion next month. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it because that, that quality time with family is precious. So, you know, investing in the places in your life that are most meaningful to you, that's important. That's, we don't work just for money. Money is, is the thing. The, the ultimate goal is happiness, you know, having a nice home, roof over your head, food, um, getting a good education for yourself, for your children, making sure that they're self-sufficient, able to go get jobs. That, those are the goals of life, you know. Um, and we focus too much on the things that are on, don't last. Um, you know, beauty is, is inside. And we don't, we don't talk enough about what is, you know, who your true self is, your authentic self, be true to that. Um, I, I believe in the inner child. So, you know, it's the world that piles all their goop and nastiness onto us and we walk around with it. We don't need to just get rid of it and be true to ourselves and, and, uh, and you'll find your path. It'll lay itself out for you. Oh, I agree. And I, and I, and I hate, I'm, I'm so sorry I got distracted. I can talk to you about it. <laughs> but I definitely want to share with everybody a little bit about your journey and uh, your Emmys that you have and the backstory because I think that's a huge uh, thing that you've done and the movement that you pretty much started. So back when I was working at the county of San Diego, uh, one of my coworkers and still good friends, Aaron Bizak, um, he came to me and he said, you know, and he was the health policy advisor for the elected official we worked for. He says, you know, I had a meeting today. It was really disturbing. And it said that kids in our community are using prescription drugs to get high. And now I'm not a health person. So I, w I looked at him like he was crazy. And I said, I don't understand what that, what the significance of what you <laughs> just said is. And he said, well, well, prescription drugs are a controlled substance. So if we're having kids that are using drugs to get high, one of the things we have to worry about is that, um, you know, th these are opiates and that, you know, a cheaper drug, which, which pills are not cheap, uh, at the time, the going rate for one oxycotton pill was 80 bucks on the on the market. So, if they'll go to heroin, they'll go to another opiate that's cheaper. And be, because we were in San Diego, we were close to the Mexican border, we had to worry about black tar heroin. And at the time, it was just a crazy concept. We're not going to have a heroin scourge in America. We got rid of that. We had problems with prescription drugs, and we started looking into it, doing a lot of research. There was no multi-agency task force in the country that had been formed at that time to deal with prescription drug abuse. However, there were massive trending signs that showed it was going to become a massive problem. Kentucky had problems, Tennessee had problems, Canada had problems. Canada was putting out higher dosing of opiates than we were at the time. They, they've since put down a, a stronger regulation on that. But at the time, you could get 120 milligrams of, of Oxycontin per pill. Yes, very, very high. The highest we had in the U.S. was 80, which is still really high. Um, and so we started looking into it, and we put together this task force and involved the DEA, the local sheriffs, the federal-level uh, um, state, county, city, every elected official that would have anything to do with it, the district attorney, city attorney, our um, elected office, 
um, the mayor brought all these people together and we launched this massive task force, which was called the, and it still exists, the Prescription Drug Abuse Task Force in San Diego County. And I handed up all of the media relations that came with launching it and, and putting out the word. And at the time, um, we, we realized that this was going to become a big problem. I mean, there, there was no way that they was not going to become a big problem because we had no way to take back drugs. Diversion was a huge problem. And the streets were awash with them. You know, every, every, every zip code with a high senior citizen population was being robbed for their drugs. So we knew that this was going to become a bigger and bigger problem. So we put together some posters. We did a full-day photo shoot. We did uh, two commercials that were put on television, which I wrote and um, produced with a TV team. And that's what I won Miami's for, was, was the, the, um, the commercials. And the commercials, one of them ended up becoming the basis for uh, drug-free America's prescription abuse prevention campaign just a few years ago, which is wonderful flattery to be um, mimicked in that way. Um, so we launched it, and at the time, the local media said we were, we were creating hysteria for no reason. There was no such thing as a prescription drug abuse problem, and there's no way that we're going to start to see heroin on the rise. So we created these things called Take Back Days, which you probably saw here in Houston as well. Um, which was a big deal because there was no mechanism to take back drugs from the streets because it was a controlled substance. Um, but they realized they had to take them in somewhere and have them destroyed safely. Couldn't have people flushing them down the toilet and putting them into the water system. So um, that was one thing that we did. The other thing that we did was we um, started talking to people about reducing the dosing of prescription drugs because at the time being a drug seeker was very easy just walking into a hospital and saying I want drugs I have a back pain and they would get it um, and we we worked with the medical examiner's office to start testing for prescription drugs in systems for people who had died of an overdose and that was a very expensive test that that test in itself because it wasn't a standard um, alcohol or regular drug test like an illicit drug so they started testing for opiates, and we found um, an enormous pattern in the, the um, opiate addiction uh, problem that was happening, and it was contributing to overdose deaths. And now it is the leading cause of overdose death in the country. So I didn't want to be right about that, and I hope that uh, we see lawmakers figuring out some way to reduce this the scourge across America, because it's very sad. It's, it's ruining so many lives right now. Erica at underscore or at Erica underscore Holloway, H-O-L-L-O-W-A-Y on Twitter. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn as well, Erica Holloway. And you can check out our website, mouthmarketingllc.com. I can't thank you enough for joining us and for your continued support, Erica. I wish you and Ashley nothing 
startup success, a continued success. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. And until next time, guys, this has been Brunch and Slay. Be sure and subscribe and tell your friends. Talk to you soon.